So today we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke that's titled Upside Down. And I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. And you can find that on page 871 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So a little bit about this sermon. In the past two sermons, we have considered the child of God and the fear of God. And so today we're going to be talking about the treasure of God. And there are two warnings that Jesus brings out in this passage, and I put them like this. First, don't let greed drive the bus. And second, don't let worry drive the bus. So with that said, if you are able, please stand with us to honor the reading of God's word. And if you are not able, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, Nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. You may be seated. One of our favorite books in the Bell household is titled, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus by Mo Willems. So how many kiddos in the room know this book and love this book? All right, I see you. I see you. Got some adult kiddos in the room who like it too. The premise is pretty simple. At the beginning, a bus driver speaks to you, the reader, 
and says, hey, I need to go away for a minute. Can you watch the bus for me? There's only one rule while I'm gone. Whatever you do, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. And then the bus driver walks away, and what happens? Here comes the pigeon, and he tries everything under the sun to get you to let him drive the bus. So recently, we have turned this book into a teaching point for everyone in the family, mom and dad included. And there are often times where something shows up in our lives, and it wants to drive the bus. It can be a certain emotion or desire or behavior, none of which are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when they take the wheel, a major wreck is about to happen. We say things like this, you know, it's okay for sad to be on the bus, but it's not okay for sad to drive the bus. It's okay for silly to be on the bus, but it's not okay for silly to drive the bus, or it's okay for TV to be on the bus, but it's not okay for TV to drive the bus. Don't let the pigeon drive the bus. Now, as we re-enter the scene of Luke 12, where the crowds are so large that they're trampling each other, Jesus enters into a major theme of his teaching about the kingdom, money. And what he communicates might be summed up like this. It's okay for money to be on the bus, But it's not okay for money to drive the bus. So contrary to popular belief, the Bible doesn't say that money is a root of all kinds of evils, but that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In other words, don't let money drive the bus. Jesus is relentless in the way that he goes after our hearts in this teaching. It's not money that's keeping anyone out of the kingdom. It's the human heart making money into an object of worship. And Jesus knows that when we consider our greatest treasure to be wealth and possessions, it's a false security that will ultimately pierce us with many pangs, especially in the economy of man that is based on a currency that is only temporary. No matter how much you hoard up, whether at your death or at the fall of what that currency stands on, you will no longer have it. What we need, church, is a better treasure. Amen? Now, in order to get us to that better treasure, Jesus confronts two evils rooted in our love of money. The first one is the one that we all think of, right? Greed. The greedy heart says, I can never get enough. And to that, Jesus responds, you know, it's okay for you to desire things, but it's not okay. Don't let greed drive the bus. So I see this coming out beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, Who made you a judge or arbiter over, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, it might seem kind of random for a person in the crowd to suddenly like blurt out something like this, but in that day it was common for people to go to rabbis to rule on disputed points of the law. Now, we don't know any of the details of this situation, but the man makes it very clear that he doesn't think there are two sides to the story, does he? He feels that an injustice has been done to him, and so he's essentially saying to Jesus, hey, rule in my favor. 
Now, if this was an exchange that took place on a text thread, then Jesus' response would be kind of like that emoji that has the one raised eyebrow. Like, dude, are you serious asking me this right now? And not just because a mortal man is bringing a petty matter to an immortal God. No, Jesus says, pshht, here, because of this. He came to bring people to God, not property to people. And so he says to them, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus sees what is driving the heart of the man and us. It is all covetousness, or in other words, every kind of greed. It is the word pleonexia, which means the desire to have more. Now the image that comes to mind here, which I think is relevant to the context of the story, is the last time that I was at a relative's house um, as a young boy. And my memory of that place is not forever marked by the Christmas gatherings that we shared there or the fun that I had playing with my cousins there. But it is this lasting memory, seeing two of my relatives literally coming to blows with one another, saying things to one another that I'd never heard said before between adults. Now, what did they come to blows over? And what ended that time and that space forever in our family? Who got what of the inheritance? And that's what greed does. It defines life in terms of possessions rather than relationships. And we might say to ourselves, like the Pharisees, Whoo, man, I thank you, God, that I'm not like those people. That scene will never take place in my family. But notice that Jesus says, one, take care, and two, be on your guard. That's a double warning. And you'd think that Jesus would give a double warning for something like adultery, right? But here's the thing about adultery. If you are committing adultery... It's pretty obvious to you, right? Nobody needs to tell you that that's what you're doing, but not greed. It's like cancer. You can have it down in your bones and not even know it. Let me give you an example. According to world standards, we are among the wealthiest people in the world without question. And yet according to cultural standards, you know, relativity, classes, no matter where you are, there's always someone under you and someone above you. According to that cultural standard, we all believe we still don't have enough. At the epicenter of our culture is pleonexia, the desire to have more. Beware. Adultery may have slain its thousands, But greed has slain its ten thousands, especially in our culture. And Jesus then illustrates this with a parable about a man who, similar to the crowd, guy in the crowd, he seems completely oblivious to the greed that's in his heart. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. 
I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now it's easy to caricature this man as the greedy villain, but his situation is actually pretty much morally neutral. He comes by his wealth honestly, and being wealthy is not a sin. Plus, much of wealth in that day came in the form of physical assets, so he's got to do something with the grain that God has poured into his lap. But where you see the greed coming to the surface isn't even so much in the action he takes, but the words that he uses. Listen to all these personal pronouns. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down. I will build. I will store. I will say. And then the only point at which the pronouns change is when he speaks to his own soul, which happens elsewhere in Scripture, but only ever to acknowledge God, not self. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So why are you downcast? Hope in God. But this man is making this dangerous assumption as he speaks to his own soul. This wealth is all mine. Therefore, this soul is all mine. And so you see what's underneath greed? Pride. This is what James gets at when he writes this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's like, what's wrong with that? That's normal. That's, that's, what, that's what people do. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, you know, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogant pride. And all such boasting is evil. It's not dependent upon the Lord. It revolves entirely around you. And so similar to last Sunday's passage, this is a matter of focusing on temporary physical power. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus terms this the deceitfulness of riches, which is one of the things that chokes out the gospel sown in someone's heart. You see, what it does is it makes you think that you control the future of your soul. It's just like when me and Pastor Jason are driving down Southern Parkway with children in our car, thinking that we're good enough drivers to evade anybody who does anything stupid around us. And then suddenly someone careens directly into us and there's nothing we can do to get out of that accident. We are trusting in our ability to avoid it. And yet, suddenly we are not in control, or at least we are suddenly aware that we are not in control. And so God says to us, when we act this way, depending upon our own riches, fool, verse 20, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, y'all, we must be constantly asking ourselves and one another, does that really belong to me? Do I really need to buy that? Could I live more simply? Could I give more joyfully? 
Because when we go unchecked, we always lay up treasure for ourselves. Or, more accurately, we make ourselves the treasure. In other words, we fail to be rich toward God, which I think is a phrase that could be defined in this way, to make God the treasure. The one who makes him the treasure in the same scenario sounds more like this as he responds to the, the good movement, the, the un, um, unearned uh, prestige of, 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 of wealth coming his way. God, this is all yours. You've made my fields prosper. Show me how to express with my riches that you are my treasure. I already have enough. I don't need a bigger safety net. I do indeed want to make merry. There's nothing wrong with that. But not in self-indulgent parties. I don't want to retire in such a way that I can just give up on anything in life besides whatever I want to do myself. I want to celebrate with people who have been helped by my generosity. I will say to my soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Listen, y'all, I want to have that kind of treasure. Don't you? A kind of treasure that can allow you to say, you know what? Money is just money. I can use it for good things to bless myself and my family. And I can use it for good things to bless others and give it away joyfully because it does not define my life. I want that kind of treasure. And I hope you do too. Church, it's okay for you to desire things. But don't let greed drive the bus. But according to Jesus, there's another expression of the love of money, one that probably hits closer to home with more of us, and it's called worry, where greed says, I can never get enough. Worry says, I'm afraid I may not have enough. Thus, wealth can be just as dangerous to those who don't have it as to those who do. And so to this form of covetous sin, it seems that Jesus responds, It's okay for you to be sensitive to your needs, but don't let worry drive the bus. We see that this is a continuation of what Jesus has been teaching because verse 22 begins with the word, and he said to his disciples. We also know that it's connection to the previous teaching because it starts with, therefore, in light of what I've just said, therefore, I tell you. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So notice that once again, similar to last week, Jesus is turning here to his disciples to address their sin, and not simply the world's. And it comes in the form of a command, do not be anxious. Now, I want to acknowledge that anxiety is a massive and complex issue, especially in the current mental health epidemic after the past two years. And we can choose to address anxiety similar to the comedian Bob Newhart in a famous Mad TV sketch. I don't know if you've seen it, but he is acting as a counselor. A woman walks into his office for the first time. He says, this won't take very long. Usually my sessions are only about five minutes and sometimes not even that. But go ahead and tell me what's going on with you. And she says, well, I'm really struggling with this overwhelming fear of being buried alive. And he says, okay. Well, I want to give you two words um, that's going to help you with that. 
And she's like, well, should I write it down? He's no, I, people usually seem to be able to remember these pretty well. So just, you ready? She's, okay, I'm ready. Stop it. That's what he says to her. And she's like, well, you, what? And he just keeps saying it over. Stop it. Why would you be afraid of something like that? Are you crazy or something? And so as it goes on and on, um, she expresses that she does not like his counsel very well. And he says, okay, okay, I understand. Let me give you 10 words. I mean, you may want to write these down since, you know, it's more than two. And so she gets out her pen and paper, and uh, he says to her, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. (laughs) So we can choose to respond to anxiety by just saying, Jesus said it's a sin. Stop it. You're sinning. But no, an anxious heart needs the tender concern that a good shepherd himself would give. While at the same time, holding to the truth that anyone who knows it needs to be addressed but is unwilling to address it, for him it is sin, as James says. Now, one of the ways you can translate the word that Jesus uses here for anxious is to meditate upon. To be anxious is to allow yourself to obsess over something to the point of unbelief. Well, I guess God doesn't value me as we scroll through social media and see pictures of others because I don't get to go to restaurants as often or as nice as others or get to eat food that's Instagrammable. Well, I guess God doesn't provide for me because I don't get to buy clothes as often or as nice as others or go on all these really nice vacations. So, since the future depends on me, there's the connection to the rich fool, I guess I'll value and provide for myself, whether by scheming for more money or spending money that I don't have. We do that. But as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, there is far more to your inner life than the food you put in your stomach and far more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Not letting worry drive the bus doesn't just mean no longer meditating upon the things of earth. Stop it! Just stop it! No, no, no. It means fighting by the power of the Holy Spirit to set your mind on the things above. To be non-anxious is to obsess over something to the point of belief. What is that something? Well, Jesus points to it in three ways, very tangible. First, verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, at the beginning of COVID, thanks to a couple of elderly pastors, I started getting into bird watching. And I really believe that God brought this into my life as a gift, not just because he started sending all kinds of amazing birds right into my little backyard, like an indigo bunting or a family of barred owls that some of you yourselves have seen as they come around this year to nest. I see this as a gift because it came at a time when my depression and anxiety were overwhelming. And to this day, there's something about, I can't explain it, about watching birds that takes my mind off of stressful things and immediately calms my soul for a moment. Why? I think it's because them birds ain't stressing. Them birds ain't stressing. They wake up in the morning and even though they got to go get it, the food is there always. But not just for any old bird, Jesus says. Consider the ravens. (laughs) Listen, man, I, 
I don't like the Ravens. I don't like the Baltimore Ravens. I don't like to look at the other Ravens either, okay? They're creepy, and let me tell you why. These were declared unclean animals according to the Old Testament law. And historically, they have been viewed as birds associated with death and grief. Let me give you an example. The creepy poet Edgar Allan Poe chooses to write an amazing poem that some of you all learned in high school. What's the title of it? The raven. Oh, man. And he croaks this thing over and over that will haunt your nightmares after you read that poem. So what's the point of this? God feeds even them. So don't be stressing you who were unclean and dead in your unbelief also. God loves even you. The second example comes in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So one scholar suggests that the flower Jesus refers to here is the purple anemone which would be comparable to the purple royal robes worn by Solomon, the richest king in Israel's history. So I looked it up this week. I wanted to show it to you. And I don't know about you, but it took my breath away, similar to the Queen of Sheba when she came and visited Solomon and took her breath away. If we would pause long enough from the frenetic pace of our lives to observe flowers like this, we would see this. They ain't stressing. In our context, however, it would probably be more fitting for us to observe this, not in the anemone, but in the dandelion, right? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, the yard flower, so common that it's considered a weed. If it doesn't first get plucked up or sprayed with weed killer, it'll soon be mowed down and good for nothing but the burn pile. And yet God clothes even them. So don't be stressing you who were good for nothing but the burn pile. God loves even you. The third example comes in verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You know, it's interesting that verse 25 can be translated to read either as adding a short period to your age or adding a short measure to your height. So arguments go back and forth as to which one this is, but the principle is the same. No matter how much you obsess over it, can you grow taller than the height God has measured for you? And can you live longer than the death God has set for you? Even just a little. No. Even something that small is beyond your control. So, don't be stressing you who were unable to measure up on your own. God loves even you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Instead of getting worked up and saying something like this, well, I guess God doesn't value me. Our 
getting worked up over God's love for us frees us to say, no, I believe God does value me. So I receive my food with a glad and generous heart. Instead of getting worked up and saying, well, I guess God doesn't provide for me. Our getting worked up over God's love frees us to say, no, I believe God does provide for me, so I'm content with the clothes that I can afford. And instead of getting worked up and saying, well, since the future depends on me, I guess I'll value and provide for myself. Our getting worked up over God's love for us frees us to say, since the future depends on him, I'll trust him to value and provide for me. He's proven himself, which means I don't have to scheme or spend money that I don't have. In other words, verse 29, you do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor are you worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, trust his heart and seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Let's be honest about this right now. The world is worried to death. Just get around somebody who don't know Jesus. The world is worrying itself to death, and for good reason. So just think about how upside down this is. You, in the midst of that world exuding a non-anxious presence resisting the culture of outrage and still having all that you need how upside down is that in our time yes i'm not an ostrich with my head buried in the ground i see the mess i see how it's getting worse but you know what it's gonna be all right because my trust is not in myself and having more than enough to have a comfortable life. My trust is in Jesus Christ. No matter what suffering, no matter what difficulty comes my way, I don't have to be outraged about everything. I don't have to be anxious. You know what that would do? That would show the world that you have a heavenly Father who loves you and that his kingdom has come. Listen, I want that kind of treasure, don't you? I hope you do today. Listen, church, it's okay for you to desire things, but don't let worry drive the bus. You know, it's always fun when we read to our kids books like Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. And page after page, the pigeon tries to bargain and manipulate, okay? So he's saying things like, I'll be your best friend. And then in the very next page, no fair. How about I give you five bucks? Oh, that's a tempting one for kiddos. I bet your mom would let me. Man, that is so manipulative, this pigeon. What's the big deal? I have dreams, you know. It's just a bus. Fine. Guilt trip, right? My goodness, this pigeon. And so page after page, the kids have the fortitude to say, no, pigeon, you can't drive, despite that pigeon's growing frustration and manipulation. However, when we turn the tables and we begin to apply the same principle to ourselves, it's really not so much fun. When we say things like, you know, it's okay for sad to be on the bus, but don't let sad drive the bus. Like, it's good guidance, 
right? Some of y'all are like, I'm going to use that. That's what I'm taking away from the sermon today. Use that. But the problem that we have found with this guidance is that it's just not entirely possible in a sinful heart. It would be like me as your pastor ending this sermon by saying to you, hey, it's okay for you to desire things, but don't let greed drive the bus. It's okay for you to be sensitive to your needs, but don't let worry drive the bus. Amen. See you next Sunday. I mean, how would that be any different from something you'd hear on a self-help show like Dr. Phil? Right? It's good guidance. It's just not possible in a sinful heart. And Jesus is relentless in the way that he goes after our hearts. His message, he doesn't say, don't let greed or worry drive the bus. No, no. Instead, he says, let me drive that bus. Let me give you a better treasure. One that will never pierce you with many pangs. One that is based on the economy of God. That will never pass away. That every time you give in sacrifice and joy, it is laid up for you in heaven. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure, his delight, to give you the kingdom. So in the entire New Testament, this is the only place where we see the phrase little flock. Isn't that interesting? So what's Jesus saying here? Yes, he's speaking to the small number of true disciples, the few who do find a better treasure. But also, and more so, he's speaking to the care that the little flock may expect to receive from its shepherd, the father who is delighted to give them the treasure. Wait a minute. Does it say that if the little flock stops being greedy and stops worrying, then the father is delighted to give you the treasure? No, that's, that's not what it says. No, it comes as a free gift of grace. You know the only way to release your gnarled, like rigor mortis grip on earthly treasure? You know, the only way to do that. The power of something like getting hit by a bus. That's the only thing that can release your grip. But what bus? This bus. The truth that you are already treasured. Sinner, you have to be captured by the reality that in your place, Jesus came never letting greed or worry drive the bus. And that despite the fact that he came in poverty, and not just economic poverty. Now, when it comes to being rich toward God, wasn't anybody richer than the Son of God himself who had it all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, says David in Psalm 24. God says, hey, if I was hungry, would I ask you? The whole earth is mine. I don't ask you. And so he willingly goes from being the richest ever to the poorest ever. On the cross, he loses his wealth and glory and honor and power and status. The treasure of God forsaken by God. Why? Y'all hear that sound? Anybody? It's that bus I was talking about. Here it comes. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might Become 
rich. The better treasure that Jesus wants to give comes only by grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. He pays that bill and he does it gladly for you because that's how much he treasures you. Little flock, how much does God treasure you that he would give up himself? Every other treasure besides Jesus will require you to be pierced with many pangs to get it. Only this treasure can you get, not by you being pierced, but him. You see that? Jesus became the man who was judged to divide his inheritance with his brothers. See that? Jesus became the man with bigger barns who died and left it for you to eat, drink, and be merry. You see that? Get that treasure down into your heart and you know what will happen? Like you'll see money for what it is. A gift from God to be used for the glory of God, but not treasure. And if that happens in your heart, in the hearts of the people of this room, like you know what that will enable you and us to do? Exactly what Jesus says in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now I do not think that this means to literally sell everything you own and give it away. That would be the easier response and one that can be done in your own zeal. The harder response and the one only possible through a changed heart. It isn't foregoing all responsibility for wealth and possessions, but holding all wealth and possessions with open hands. Like we practiced together last week. Lord, all I have is yours. Have your way with it. Remember that the context here is the little flock. And so let me apply the passage this way, very briefly. In the context of the true disciples who have let Jesus drive the bus, God's radical work of grace has taken the pride underneath the greed and the worry and has turned it into what? What's the opposite of pride? Humility. God's taken that pride and turned it by His grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into a person, takes it and turns it into humility. And so two things happen in the context of the little flock. In the little flock, where he is delighted to bring his kingdom, one, people in need can be humble enough to ask for help. We're struggling right now. It's embarrassing because in America, you're supposed to stand on your own two feet And when you get down and out, you're supposed to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But you know what? Because I don't live by pride, but I live by humility. I can ask for help when I need help. And that comes all of our ways, doesn't it, at times? But second, it means that the people with means can be humble enough to give help. See that? Both those things happening 
at the same time among the same people. And so just as we see later in the New Testament among people like the church at Jerusalem and Philippi and even Antioch, you know what a community like that would reveal? What would a community like that that's got those two movements happening on the basis of humility that flows from the gospel, you know what it would reveal? The title of today's sermon, The Treasure of God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today we are announcing that Jesus Christ is the treasure that we've all been looking for. Our invitation this morning, if you're a baptized believer, is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. There is gluten-free available up here, but I do want to announce today that we no longer have the individual communion cups because those boogers are really expensive. And we feel like we've moved far enough along that we don't need those in bulk anymore. And so... We hope that this is enough for you, and if it's not, please let us know. If you're a believer, but you've not yet been baptized, we want to invite you to respond to the Lordship of Christ by being baptized. And if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, man, some treasure is laid before you. Would you take it? That's all you got to do. You don't have to earn it. It's by grace, by the blood of Jesus that he was glad to spill so that you could have his riches. There'll be pastors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Today we've talked about greed. We've talked about worry. I know we got some worried people in this room. I know you came in here this morning heavy laden with something that kept you up in the night last night or this week. Would you come back and let us as pastors pray with you, pray for you, pray over you? Let's pray. We bow before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word that speaks to us even in a place where it hurts. Lord, you know the idolatry of money that exists in our culture and our world. You know how the love of money grips our hearts and shapes our lives, our bank accounts. And yet, Father, only through Jesus Christ can our rigor mortis grip on this bus that is the love of money be taken away. And we say, Lord Jesus, We want you to drive the bus. Father, would you move in such a way in this moment by the power of your spirit to compel people to come to you? Those who don't know you would come to you and say, I've been been wasting my time and energy, my life on temporary worthless treasure. And I want to lay that garbage down and I want to pick up the treasure of God. Would you help them come to you, Lord Jesus, today to turn away from their sins and to turn to you in faith, receiving your grace. And Lord, for everyone else in this room who already knows you, I pray that they would respond to you according to what you've revealed in their hearts, and that they would come before you not hiding anything, but saying, yes, Lord, you see it all. You see the greed that's there. You see the worry that's there. You see the pride that's there. Lord, forgive me. Renew me as I come to your table, as I depend upon you in this tangible way in the context of God's people once again. And Lord, I do pray also that we would be a little flock like you describe, 
that in the midst of a world that's worried to death, we would not be worried to death. And we would not participate in the culture of outrage. But we would see it all for what it is. Our hearts would be grieved by it. But we would have peace. Because we know you. And the future depends on you. Have your way, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.